0: For the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at the Advent encounters. Every one of the Christmas characters at one point or another has an encounter with the supernatural, with the divine, primarily with an angel or an angelic heavenly host. And so we're going to take a look at those stories beginning um, this morning with Joseph's story. Joseph's story is told in Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 25, and we've asked Carol Eilers to uh, read Scripture. Carol, if you'll step up to the platform there and uh, what we do is we stand face the middle of the room for the reading of God's Word here because it's central to who we are essential to what we believe
1: this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph but before they came together she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph her husband was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace
0: You know, part of the wonder of this story is that every one of the characters, every chapter of the Christmas story has some form of divine encounter, and it brings us to a point of wonder. What if we would ever have an experience like that? Um, And I wanted to begin by simply asking you, when's the last time you really had an encounter with God? Where where would you identify place and a time and how long ago that you had an experience where you can say, really, I, I experienced God there. Um, maybe a nudge that you sensed that you needed to do something to make something right, to accomplish something, to stop doing something, to start doing something. You know, last week, uh, Pastor Chuck had many of you uh, make a commitment. It was your offering last week if you were here. It was something you were willing to surrender, something you were willing to commit. And for perhaps some of us, it was a matter of groupthink and you came forward because everyone came forward. Perhaps for others of you, you had that sense that this was something God was telling you to do. No angelic heavenly host, perhaps, but there was something that nudged your heart and your mind and created this new commitment. You know, our prayer each week here is that somehow you might have some type of Divine encounter. And again, it may not be radical. It may be subtle. Maybe God impresses you by something that's said or sung or even a random prompting that just being in this place with people focused on faith, uh, it does something because of your presence. Advent encounters. Now, let me get into the first and share a little bit about the journey of Joseph. Joseph. Uh, this is Joseph's story today, uh, his Advent encounter, and quite frankly, begins in a really awkward place. In fact, it's beyond awkward. It's, it's, it's actually devastating, um, this particular moment in his life. And I want us to try to relive that, go back and try to enter into that moment. And, and wherever it happened, however it happened, Joseph and Mary are sitting together, and Mary says to Joseph, <clears throat> Joseph, I'm pregnant. Fellas, I want you to pay close attention to this story. Place yourself in that moment in the Christmas story. Your fiance says, I'm pregnant. And my response, if I were Joseph, would be, I know it's not mine. Well, Mary goes on to say, that's something else I need to talk to you about. This child has no earthly father. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Um, I can picture Joseph going back to his folks and saying, hey, listen. Don't ask me how. Don't ask me what happened. Mary's pregnant. And dad says, no, Joseph. No, I didn't have anything. Had nothing to do with it. It's interesting that in in some ways the Bible is emotionless, matter of fact in this moment of the Christmas story, while highly emotive in many others. This is what it said, verse 18. She was found to be with child. I know if any of us have been through that moment or can imagine that moment, we'd be saying more than that. Now, doubling back to the culture of Jesus' day, essentially there were three steps to marriage in the Jewish world of Jesus' day. First was the engagement, and often the engagement could take, take place early in a young boy or girl's lives. It was, they were arranged marriages back in the day, not all, but many. The engagement, that could go on for years. The betrothal was in the moment that Matthew 1 speaks. This made the previous engagement official and binding. And during the time of betrothal, the couple were known as husband and wife, and a betrothal could only be broken by divorce and typically lasted approximately a year. A year, The marriage was not consummated until the marriage, the actual wedding feast took place again, after this year of betrothal. We find the story in the period of betrothal. And we don't know much at all about Joseph. Again, we put like a 35, 40-year-old range on it, but young men in Jesus, they were getting married in their teens, girls in their early teens. And so maybe adjust your picture of that moment just a little bit. There's only one thing we really know, certainly, in this moment about Joseph. And from the passage that Carol read, we know this. Joseph was faithful to the law. In some of the other translations, it uses the word he was righteous. Obedience to God's word is what mattered to him. And when Mary told Joseph she was pregnant, he had every right to feel disgraced, especially in that culture in that day. He knew the child wasn't his own. And Mary's apparent unfaithfulness created an incredibly terrible social stigma for both of them. Joseph not only had the right to divorce Mary, but under Jewish law, she could be put to death by stoning. Which on occasion would happen. Joseph was faithful to the law, it states. And yet what I love about this image, this insight into Joseph, he was sensitive to Mary's reputation as well. And fellas, if this is you in that moment, what would you do with that fiance? And again, culturally it's hard even to, you know, it's just not as big of a deal today for this culture as it was for theirs. But this is what Joseph decided to do. He decided he would divorce her quietly. And his actions toward Mary, his fiance, revealed the kindness and the sensitivity of this young man. All that we know is that Joseph was obedient, he was righteous, he took God's word seriously. And, And what happens when we do that as well is God comes to us in fairly unique ways with direction and guidance. So in the midst of his uncertainty, in the midst of the pressure of his perhaps friends and family to do the right thing, divorce her, The passage goes on to show what happens immediately after that in Matthew 1, 20 to 21. Check this out. But after he considered this, the the quiet divorce, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what was conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Uh, Fellas, are you with that? I mean, what would you say to that? She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. What do you do with that little tidbit of information, fellas? So does that make me the stepdad of whom? Is this like foster parent? What, who am I? What does this mean? The son of the Messiah? There has never been a culture in recorded history that lived with a sense of expectation for a future deliverer than the Jews did. It was true 2,000 years ago. It's still true today. And now, fellas, you're going to be a stepdad. Try that one on. You're gonna raise him, you're gonna nurture him, you're gonna teach him how to uh, do whatever vocation you're involved in. You're gonna have to discipline him, I don't know. Question? Understand the moment for Joseph. It's the beginning of his journey, but his journey is all about obedience. His journey is of obedience. So what does Joseph do next? And this is the monumental moment. I would argue the spectacular moment in the entire Christmas story aside from the literal birth of Jesus himself. Here's, arguably, what would you have done? This is what he did. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him to do. I think it's easy to blow right over that on the way to some more spectacular divine encounter or to the rest of the story. Having heard what he just heard, having known what he's known, he just obeyed. And why wouldn't he? Because that's who he was. See, we tend to be selective in our obedience, in what's convenient and what benefits us. But when it costs and when it even hurts, Thanks, I'll take a pass. And God God doesn't give him an explanation necessarily or doesn't owe us an explanation, a reason for everything he asks us to do. Understanding often, my friends, has to wait, but obedience can't wait. And that's the challenge of faith, of following Jesus. A Columbia researcher recently did a study on the number, studying the number of decisions the average person makes in the course of a day. And I would just have you guess. What do you think, not allowed, but how many decisions do you think on the average day you make? And again, you can argue statistics, I understand that. What the researcher found was the average person of the survey makes 70 decisions a day. And I, can, I know what you're doing. It's, when I first heard that, I was starting to count And if if things go south up here, feel free to count if that helps you pass the the time. I want you to think about those decisions. Seventy a day. And again, don't be too scientific about how to unpack that, but 70 decisions a day. One of the things I want to point out is sometime, um, either early this morning or yesterday or the day before, you made a decision to be here. And maybe that was five minutes before the service started, I don't know. You made a decision to be here in the presence of God, in the presence of your brothers and sisters, the extended family. You got to see Clark today because of that. That's what happens with good decisions. That's what happens with godly, obedient decisions. See, our faith in Christ inspires decisions that align with God's Word. So in those 70 moments in the course of a day, here's the key. Deciding to do the right thing with the right attitudes for the right reasons and displaying the kind of compassion and grace, avoiding frequenting the wrong places and, and prioritizing the right places. And every decision is an opportunity to remain obedient. And I don't know what percentage out of the 70 are those crucial little moments where you've got to decide to be obedient to God's word and follow Jesus or not, but 70 a day. And if I could pray to God to be consistent in all 70 decisions, I know what my life would be. But the more selective or inconsistent our obedience to God, the more difficult it is for us to hear him. Understand, Joseph was a righteous man. He was faithful to the law. He was obedient. And so he heard this outlandish story, this horrific situation. He just woke up and said, well, if God told me to do it via the angel, I'll just do it. One of the great heroic moments in all of the Bible is the morning he woke up and made that decision, I would argue. And since Joseph was obedient, ultimately God chose to reveal the bigger picture. And in Matthew 1, to 23, check out the verse. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. I'm not sure at what point he had that moment of recognition. But very often, consistent obedience sensitizes us to the greater providential plan of God. But when I'm doing my own thing, the odds are I'm not listening, I'm not seeing, I'm not experiencing what God has in store. But this is not about obedience. The story of Joseph is the journey of obedience that leads to worship. It's about a relationship between obedience and worship. When we do something or anything in God's name, on God's behalf, as an act of obedience, it translates, get this, into an act of worship. See, worship at its core is expressing our love to God. Someone once said worship is offering. It's the most basic definition of worship I've ever, you know, come across. Worship is offering. Whatever you offer to God is your act of worship. It expands the definition. The most practical, common, consistent way we can express our love to God is through our obedience to Him. And obedience is an act of worship, and God loves it when we obey him. Look at a couple of verses. Colossians 3, 17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever we do, God translates in that divine language into an act of worship. Romans 12 begins by saying, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in lieu of God's View of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. See, it's one thing to sing a song here, and we encourage you over the past month in our worship series to sing from the heart, but it's quite another to move out into the real day, real world, and worship Him through daily obedience. It's the understated, underpublicized form of worship that is available. More, much more often than we recognize. See, the Advent, Advent encounters in the Christmas story, uh, every one of those characters encounter an angel or angels and respond with some act of worship, without exception. Mary experiences what she experiences and writes a song glorifying God, her song of praise. The Magi finally meet the baby and they bow down and they worship. The shepherds have seen the Christ child and they return to their fields, what? Glorifying and praising God. And Joseph, he experiences this divine encounter and what does he do? He just does what God told him to do. Now that's not rocket science, is it? But I would argue it may be the most spectacular response in all of the Christmas story. Given the just incredible nature of the story, Whatever we offer God, out of gratitude, when we sing, when we engage in in a God-honoring conversation, or even it's in the quality of our work, for those of you that are going to work tomorrow morning, an act of quality, an act of integrity, in the office place is your act of worship. For students in school, it's time to take those final exams before Christmas comes, and I just don't want to. And your folks, force you to study. Or you say, you know, I'm gonna do this thing. I know I'll get a B minus, C plus, but I'm gonna study the best that I can. And that act of preparation becomes an act of worship. You're worshiping while you're doing your homework. I'm I'm trying to help here, okay? (laughs) Still may not work for you, but cut me some slack. An act of obedience is an act of worship. However, disobedience then gets in the way of our worship. It prevents these kind of God encounters. And again, your God encounter here may not be radical. You may not see lights, you know, flashing. I don't know what you'll see. It may just be a nudge, a prompting of the Holy Spirit. But when we come in here disobedient in the past week, don't expect God to move here. Often there's a gap between our level of obedience and our attempts to worship. We were... Uh, traveling to California, week of Thanksgiving. And those of you, many of you make this trip, this pilgrimage to California. And uh, just north of the small town of Alamo, you know that town? Pretty well, some of you. Now, uh, Lori and I were, my wife and I were, uh, we were getting ready for next week's Christmas musical. Did I tell you it's gonna be cool, and you better come back next time? And so we've gotta memorize the words, and then you know, working on our parts, and we're singing along with these. They're great tunes. They're a lot of fun to sing. They're powerful songs. We're praising God. We're we're worshiping in the car on the way to California. How spiritual can you get, right? And then I looked in the rearview mirror, just north of Alamo, and an angelic presence appeared. <laughs> At least there were lights flashing. And uh, you you probably know some of the rest of this story. So the sheriff pulled us over and uh, um, trying to look as, you know, repentant. You know how this goes, right? I'm beat red to trying to look repentant, you know. Um, (laughs) And so he says, well, we're in a little hurry today, are we? I said, well, yeah. And uh, where are you headed? California. California. And then my loving wife um, begins to explain from her perspective already kind of, Proactively. Well, you know, we were singing along with our Christmas musical, and I'm thinking as soon as she starts going there, can I get tagged for inattentive driving too now? And so I go, I mean, I didn't go like that, because then, so, um, so then he said, well, you know, you were going 71 in a 45 mile an hour speed zone. And I said, you won't believe this, but I said, I did not know that. Um long story short, it's a season of Thanksgiving, and I love the Nevada Sheriff's Department because they let me go. We, Lori and I think maybe she's had surgery. Yeah, don't applaud that. I'm not—I'm <laughs> confessing. I'm not celebrating. You know, we, we figure has had surgery, and still, we still have a temporary handicap sticker hanging from the mirror, and I was trying to go like this to the sheriff, you know, thinking maybe we have a handicapped person, anyway. I'm just saying, often we divorce our worship from our obedience. And unfortunately, I have a great illustration of that from just two weeks ago. The prophets are pretty bold and pretty forceful on worship and say, you know, if you're not obedient, don't bother worshiping. Preachers hate that kind of stuff. But understand, every act of obedience and reflect back in the last days. Every act of obedience, when you did it right for the right reason with the right people, all of that, you fill in the blanks. That was an act of worship for you. And I think we've really reduced our concept of worship to this place and this hour, when in fact there's great power, great power in recognizing every time that I do this for God, it's an act of worship. I would just encourage you to make that an intentional uh, commitment uh, today. This week, you know, when you do something right for, for the right reasons, and, and maybe not nonchalant stuff, but when you, when you have one of those moments, teachable moments, where you say, oops, I need to do this the right way. I need to do this with her or him for the right way. Lord, that's my act of worship. And we'll develop a lifestyle of worship in so doing. Uh, The first Advent encounter of this series is a young, in all probability, teenage man named Joseph who simply did what he always knew to do. He obeyed, regardless of how weird the moment was, regardless of how daunting the implications were. And in doing that, his obedience to stay with Mary, became an act of worship. All I'm saying is this. This week you'll have countless opportunities to worship God. Sometimes in a group, sometimes in the privacy of your personal devotions, but every time you do something, every time you say something, you do it to the glory of God, it's an act of worship. I just think that's a cool story. And that may be your form of God encounter for the time being until the angels show up to you. You ready to get out of this room so we can worship? Well, we're not done yet. But I just want to encourage you to recognize your potential as a worshiper simply in going about the daily routine with an eye on God and wanting to give Him the best that you have. Let's pray. God is just so cool that you can take simple acts of obedience, consistent with your word, doing, saying, and relating in ways to people and situations, in ways that make you proud, and that becomes worship to you. You have created us with an incredible capacity to worship. It's our unique role in all of creation and in the, everything you've ever built on this planet. And so allow us daily this week as we head towards through this holiday season of Advent, as we anticipate the coming of the baby Jesus and the return of the Messiah Jesus, allow us to do everything in your name and in so doing make you proud and allow us to worship. In Christ's name we pray, amen.